0: Miriam and I had a friend some years ago that um, she's been a friend for years to, to, to Miriam and I as a couple. And some years ago we learned that she was abused as a child. And her, her brothers would, it happened in the barn. With details that I won't talk about now, but I, what I want to say is this. Imagine that young girl, 11, 12, 13 years old. She's now had life experiences that a a girl should never have. What do you do? There's loneliness. There's despair. There's there's this uh, this, this vexing relationship with my body that I don't know what to do with. What do you do? Are we left without answers? What are our options if this happens? That'll be the, 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 uh, the focus of our topic uh, here uh, for the next 45 minutes. I want to I say this before I begin. Nothing but the blood stirs me, especially when I hear all of you singing it. And I want to say this tonight, I want to say this again, I've said it once. You have a lot of options when you think about abuse and when you think about the solutions for abuse. Abuse. In our world, we have a lot of books, we have a lot of counseling centers, we have a lot of this and that, where you can find, find solutions. Some are Bible-based, some are not. But I want the church to be, I want, I want you and I to be ch- churches. I want us to belong to churches who still believe in the power of Jesus Christ to transform a human's life, no matter what their experiences. I want each of us tonight to go home and think about our what we believe and how we believe and ask ourselves the question, do, do I really believe that Jesus Christ can transform the human's life no matter what happened? I want that to be embedded before we begin and as we move through here. Remember, all of a life is a journey. I'm going to give you eight roadblocks to healing or eight roadblocks to... Um, to um, to overcome, so I, I will I will talk about eight things that are in the way of someone who's been abused, that are in the way of healing, and how to overcome them. But before I do it, I would like to give you four foundational things that that I want to I want to carry those eight things with. First of all, the answer to human suffering are not Getting concrete step by step, um, step by step directions out of a hole, or out of a canyon, or out of this misery. I believe that the answers to human suffering are are found in having a relationship with Jesus Christ. So close, so meaningful, so beautiful, so wonderful that our questions don't have to be answered. Let me say that again. Because that's a premise that, uh, that's a premise that I live with as I do my work, is that the, the supernatural power of Jesus Christ in a person's life can transform the human heart to the point where the relationship with Jesus Christ is so wonderful, so precious, so beautiful, that the questions don't have to be answered. And, let me say this, if I had the answer to every problem that you face, if you're an abused person or you're helping an abused person, if I had the answers tonight to every problem, you would still be left cold without a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I believe the answers to life's problems are more relational than they are propositional. Which means this, When 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 we face a set of problems, we tend to Think okay, what's step one, what's step two, what's step three, what's step four, and finally we're out of the hole. Now I admit that there is some value in that. But if if you're climbing the step ladder without Jesus Christ, you will end up with just more of the same, more emptiness. And if you're helping someone, let me let me let me tell you at the outset. One of the most important things you can do to, to them or for them is you can lead them to the cross. You can lead them to God. You can show them who God is. Once a person's heart is captured up and is is what's the word is is enamored by that, has has tasted the beauty of that relationship, then the question of why and how and all of those things uh, kind of fade in the background. Number two, I've already touched on, and that is there are dangers uh, and advantages in a step-by-step program or a step-by-step um, way out of the abuse hole. Let me, let me tell you what the dangers. The dangers is we reduce, um, we, we take really complex human experiences and we reduce them to simple categories. Men like I do that. I feel good about that because I can say to you okay follow these 10 steps and you're out. We feel good about that because we can control it and explain it. But do you know what there's there's things about the human the human experience that are beyond definition. Especially when you talk about what Jesus does in a person's life. You you just simply can't explain it all. The second danger is that we make uh, the process of test of restoring. So you do so and so and so, and if you don't become restored, you've skipped a step. Life is not that simple, brothers and sisters. I can't do that for, for you tonight. I can't give you a, a steps that are. I can say, well, if you haven't followed this step, and, and if you if you've gone through steps and you're not out, then you haven't done one step right. I won't do. I won't take that position. And the third thing is and this is especially for us men, we can compliment ourselves in knowing. Some of us like to know, know, know. We just like to know. And with a step-by-step program, we can complement ourselves by knowing, and sometimes we leave the most important ingredient out, and that is Jesus Christ and a relationship with Him. At risk of... At, even with all the risks, let me give you um, four steps. I told you steps are, are kind of dangerous, But let me still give you four steps. Number one is honesty. The abused person, if you want to be restored or you want to help somebody restore, be restored, we must divorce ourselves of denial and pushing this thing off and acting like it didn't happen. And we simply have to become honest before God. And we have to say, this happened to me. This happened to me. The second thing is, or the second step is the, the, per, the abused person uh, faces kind of an intense anger that this thing happened. Why do I have to face all this shame after all that abuse? After all the pain I've endured for all these years? Why do I now have to face the shame of being honest with what happened? And the potential ridicule that will come from the church and the family if I open up, especially if it was a family member. Questions like, "Haven't you forgiven after all these years? Haven't you? Haven't you? Why, why not forgive and forget?" And all of those things. Why do I have to face all of that? Um, and uh, that anger can sometimes be. And you know, you probably know people like this. If an abused person does not speak honestly, if nobody, if nobody can take that person to the cross and say, "Here's where you find deliverance of your bondage." That anger bottles up and bottles up and bottles up. And in our world, anger isn't, isn't uh, we, we, don't, we don't think it's okay to express that very easily. Anger is kind of, you shouldn't. And I'm agreed, you shouldn't. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. That's true. But there's a deep felt anger that has to, we have to bring it out, talk about it, and try to resolve it. There's often anger at God. And I'll talk about that. It's a delicate subject, subject, I know. But there's often this question is, God, why if you exist and you're a loving God, did you allow me to go through this? And if you, if, why if you were right there, why didn't you stop this? That's an honest question. Or the question is often framed like this. Um, God wasn't there. He wasn't there. Because if he would have been, it wouldn't have happened. How do you solve that logic? The third step is repentance. One of the toughest things that you do, if, if, if we're talking about being restored now, so if you sit here and you were abused, or if you help somebody walk on this journey, is when, when somebody looks you in the eye, you look somebody in the eye and you say, uh, okay, are you willing to repent of the selfishness the self-protection, the, um, the victims you've created, would you be willing to go before God with that? And their look is like, okay, I'm the victim. Why do I have to repent? Why do I have to go before God with my sin if I've been violated? That's a, that's a tough question, but it's an important step. And the, the, the fourth step, of course, is restoration. Remember, this is what God wants. I think I can speak for Him tonight when I say these these words. That God wants temples that are holy to live in. Know ye not that ye are the temple of the the Holy Spirit which is in you? And ye are not your own. Ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are the Lord's. Verses like that. I don't think I'm telling you something new that God wants to live in holy temples. And it takes these steps. It takes honesty. It takes It takes working through that anger at the injustice. It takes repentance to be restored. Now, I have done what I said is kind of dangerous, and that is give you four steps out of the hole of abuse. But there is some logic to that, but there's also a lot of danger to that. that. I would like to influence you that um, if you work with a person like that, or you are a person like that, that it takes time. Time, time. If if, you, if if abuse if a person faces abuse and they stuff the abuse for 10, 20, 30, 40 years or longer or shorter, it often takes time before that person is really willing to come out and start the process. Just start the process. Just to trust somebody enough. To trust my brother enough. Or my sister enough. Or a couple enough. Just to start telling you the details is, a, is an extremely, extremely difficult step. So remember, it takes time. But we don't want to live in denial uh, because it de- de- denies the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ. And remember this every life must be broken, either by the lie you believe or by the truth that re- replaces that lie. Every life must be broken. Now, before I, before I go into eight enemies or roadblocks and how to overcome them, let me just give you a list of things that, um, levels of uh, severity that, are in, that influence a person's response. Hold these, I'll just go through them very quickly. Remember, there are some people that, that seem to, okay, they were violated in their, in their childhood or in their youth, and they seem to kind of crawl out and be and function normally. There are others that simply can't. I'm not here to explain all of that, but, but let me say this. There are a few things that, that, um, that influence the level of severity. First of all, it's the nature of the relationship. Was the abuser or the perpetrator a close family member? Or was he an authority? If the abuser is an authority, it is almost impossible for the abused not to question God. Because God, the authority represents God. Number two is, uh, what level of physical violence was there? Number three, what level of psychological violence was there? Was there were there threats and blackmail and things like that? Uh, and guilt and shame of all, and all of that used on the, on the abused by the perpetrator. The age of the child and the perpetrator make a lot of difference. Were they close to the same age or was the age, uh, was the age difference great? The environment is the home, and I, I, I'll say it again, I believe that in, when children are loved and when the, when the home is filled with love and care for each person, abuse is not likely. But it does happen. It happens. What was the environment of the home or the environment in which it happened? If a person is violated and the, the home is dysfunctional and there's no one to turn to, that creates a horrible loneliness and a horrible anxiety that, that some people never can, can never process, or it seems like they can never process. How long was it kept a secret? How long was it kept a secret? One of, one of, one of the uh, secrets for you young parents is this. Pursue your child's heart in such a way. Be so close to their heart. In fact, it's good for us to ask our children, is there anything between us? Ask your 12-year-old son, Dad, tonight. When you get home, ask them, son, is there anything between us? Give him some time. Moms, ask your daughters, is there anything between us? Or dads, ask your daughters, is there anything between us? If the home is an environment that they can share whatever they want to share, the abuse will come out quickly and the action will end. Or hopefully will end. Um, And then the psychological effect, the emotional effect is not as traumatic. So how long was it kept secret? And uh, how long did the abuse last, of course, is another consideration. All of those things uh, measure or are indicators of how hard a person will struggle. Now, we'll move to eight roadblocks and how to overcome them. No matter what your position is this this evening, if you're helping someone or if you're walking this road yourself, uh, it probably won't be a surprise to you to say that, this, this road or this journey, uh, this, this uh, out of the abuse, the whole of abuse is a journey. And it's sometimes a very painful journey. I'm going to identify eight roadblocks and how to overcome them. And my goal is simple. That no one is trapped. No one is trapped. I don't know how you feel about being trapped, but I don't do well when I'm trapped. When I feel like I have two choices and both are equally painful and I can't decide between the two and a third option isn't open, I feel trapped. I I feel like I'm between a rock and a hard place. And let, let me just depict it in a woman, a 30 year old mom who has four children and lives in a trapped environment where this abuse has been festering for 10, 15 years. If she continues to feel trapped during the um, the pressures of childbearing years and getting older, and health health uh, struggles, and all of that, she won't do well. She'll have she'll face depression, bipolar, and uh, a host of other things. Some people opt for medication. Medication is not all bad, but medication dulls the mind, so the mind can so the mind can cope with what's happening, because the mind can't process anymore, and. Uh, so this is a journey. So let's look at the first one. The first enemy or roadblock is the abuser. Now, before I begin, let me say this. Some of these roadblocks are um, are imaginary and some are real. The abuser is a, a, a roadblock. Every time I see him, or every time I see her, but usually it's him, my heart rate goes up. My breath becomes short. And I can't, I can't function normally because I'm in the presence of, of a person who abused me. And the person continues life like that and for some reason an abused person picks up offenses really, really easily. I would like to talk to you about picking up offenses and how that's the devil's bait, but I'll leave that. But an abused person develops a victim worldview And as such, the slightest little thing will offend her. And she'll make a pile of those offenses higher and higher and higher. But the roadblock is the abuser, or is it? Let let me suggest this. That if if an abused person is 30, 40 years old, then the abuser is no longer the roadblock. The biggest roadblock. He may be one. But he's not the biggest roadblock. The biggest roadblock has now moved on the inside. Not just the outside, but the inside. How do you overcome uh, the abuser? You embrace the power of forgiveness. You embrace the power of forgiveness. If, If I could take, if all of us in here were suffering from abuse, here's what I would do. I would take you to the cross of Jesus Christ and show you the most innocent person that ever lived, that ever walked this, this earth, and I would show you how he was abused, how he was treated, and we would walk there together and one beggar would tell the other, there is hope for you. He died for you. His cross, His death, His resurrection, in, in, in all of that there is hope. There is hope. He forgave you. He spread His arms wide and and His voice rang out over Jerusalem. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And in that power, you can do the same thing. You can do the same thing. Let me state it very emphatically that there is not one thing another human being or collectively a group of human beings can do to a person that erases the power of forgiveness. You can forgive. You can forgive. I can forgive. Often the question asked is, Have I really forgiven? Have I really forgiven? There's five tests that I use. I don't think I can get them all, but first is, uh, does, is, is the pain going away? I'm not saying that the pain should all be gone the moment you forgive. Is the pain going away? Are you allowing yourself more, more uh, involvement in that person's life? It may be slow, but is it more? I can't think of the other the others, but let's just, let me just make it really simple. Forgiveness is not quite as hard as we sometimes make it. I'm not going to simplify it to make it too easy, but let me say this: that we are we are known as a people that forgive. Till something happens in the church or between our families, then we're not as ready to forgive. Sometimes, let me say this: that let's let's be people who, um, you know, sometimes the Amish say that okay, we have to forgive 490 times a day. So when you think about the abuser or the, uh, his actions, you forgive 490 times. Let me propose something else. You forgive once. From the heart, Jesus said, you, you, lose, you, you pay the debt that his sin created. You, you say to yourself, I am willing to pay the debt of his sin. And you forgive him. You release him. You let him go. Then you hold that position. When the devil comes back and asks the question, are you sure you've actually forgiven? You simply hold that position. You don't forgive over and over and over. If you want to tire the mind and wear out the mind and wear out the spirit, think about forgiving the same thing over and over and over and over again. I'd like to suggest this. You forgive correctly once. And then you hold that position when the thought comes back. When the devil or your fertile mind brings that forgiveness back into your mind, you say, No, I have forgiven that person. That person stays forgiven. So embrace the power of forgiveness. Replace mistrust with love and care. I want to plead with you this way if you forgive, that does not mean you trust. It doesn't mean that I, if, 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 my, if someone abuses my daughter, that, that I'll, I'll, I'll work through the, the, whole, the whole thing of forgiveness and the next week I will put my daughter over there to babysit again. It does not mean that. This is what it does mean. It means that we replace mistrust with love and care for that person. That person may never be trustworthy again. Never be trustworthy again. There are such cases. I had, I had an older gentleman that, that told me, in a, with tears running down his face, he said, "When you forgive, you learn to trust. You trust completely. He was talking about somebody else's experience, not his own. And he waxed eloquent about this, and finally I said, "You know what? You're wrong." And I painted a picture for him. When I got done, he said, "Oh yeah, I guess I see you don't have to trust, or you don't have to forgive. Trust is not an indication that you've forgiven." So you replace mistrust with love and care for a person. If someone has wronged me, I forgive. That does not mean that I trust that person. I can learn to trust him. He can earn trust again. All of that is true. I'll give him space for that. But I have a sole care for that person after I've forgiven. And remember this. Usually, we don't, always, we don't completely trust somebody or completely not trust somebody. We usually trust by degrees. And that degree can grow as we interact with the abuser. Reject the devil's bait is the next one. Offense is the devil's bait. Uh, I'm just going to say this, that, that I, I feel extremely sorry for an abused person when a, when a, when a girl is violated in her youth are in her childhood before she can decide right or wrong, it's it's so easy for that person. That person is actually a victim. That girl is a victim in the truest sense of the word. But you know, as she as she grows, as she matures, somebody has to help her to see. Don't pick up all the devil's bait as you go along. There'll be more offenses. We all belong to churches. Are your churches perfect? If they are, I'll move to Lancaster County. But they're not. Offense happens in church. If we could build a fence around the church and say, outside this fence you can offend, inside this fence no offense will ever, ever happen, I'd move in. But that's not reality. Don't take hold of the devil's offenses. Is the abuser an enemy or a roadblock? The answer is yes. But as a, as, a, as, a, as a person matures, there are greater enemies on the inside than the one on the outside. And that's what we're dealing with. Number two. We're, we're looking at eight enemies or roadblocks and how to overcome them. Is hungers of the human heart. I know as, as Anabaptists, Amish and Mennonites, we're not quite as emotional as some people are. We have a German, we have German blood going through our veins, and that German blood informs us that we don't cry easily, especially as men. We don't cry easily. We're supposed to be tough. We're supposed to be non-emotional. But let me say this: that your children and you as well. But let me speak for your children. Your children are born with hungers that God gave them, that we as parents have to recognize. We have, to, we have to simply say, my child is hungry for things like acceptance and love and, and uh, affirmation. And all of the, of the beautiful things that we enjoy as, as, as adults, our children are born with. They want it. They have hungers. Now, the problem with the hungers is this. An abused person has civil war in the soul or in the heart. Because the the abuse represents, uh, remember when I when I talk to you about how an abuser uh, or how a perpetrator ap- approaches its victim, his victim. He he gives in the first two stages he gives, and the person the the abuse thinks, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting, the hungers of my heart are finally being recognized and being met. Maybe for the first time. That's why dysfunctional homes and dysfunctional marriages are such a seedbed for abuse. Because a girl grows up with hungers. And and you sisters here know better how to explain that than I do. What I'm asking you as a parent is this. Let's embrace the fact that our children have hungers that they want us to meet. And that God has put those hungers in there. Otherwise, we wouldn't belong to families. We couldn't have relationships. And the beauty of all that. In abuse, those hungers are awakened in terrible dimensions. But at the same time, you have this horrible violation. That's the problem. My hungers are partially satisfied. My hungers are awakened in some of them. They're awakened. They're, they're stirred. But I'm also violated at the same time. And they learn to have hatred for their hungers. Hatred for their hungers. I wish I didn't have to be loved by my dad. I, dish, I wish I didn't want to be loved in my family. Why do they say that? Because they hate. They have learned to hate their hungers. Because of the, the pain of the violation, they've learned to hate them. So what do we do about it? Many of those abused people crucify their hungers. They go through life thinking that they'll never be met and I will become I will become whatever it takes to make sure I can get through life without more pain. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, there's a high price tag for not feeling. A high price tag for not feeling. It's too high. How do we overcome? Recognize and embrace longings. Recognize and embrace longings. Let, let me say this. I had a, a young boy, young, yeah, a young boy, single man. He called me the other day and he, or some time ago, he called me and he says, Marvin, uh, and, and he, he has this description about uh, the, the couples in his church. Remember, this is a single boy. The couples in his church are, are, are so and so and so and so. And I won't really discuss the, the details of it. But he had legitimate concerns. But I wondered why as a single person, why are you calling me about your concerns about the married couples and it had to do with sexual things about the married couples in your church? So we talked and I kind of talked him out of it. But I still wondered, oh, well, a, a couple weeks later, he calls again. And and he had again these vexing questions. And I said, well, where are these questions come from coming from? Why do you have these questions? And why don't you just? Why, and in fact, I tried this. I said, "Why don't you just let the married couples be married, and let them worry about that those those details." But he couldn't. Finally, the other day, he called me again, and I said, "Okay, I have to talk to you about the sacredness of sex." When I got done, well, he he framed it this way. He said to me. How in the world am I going to get married if it's wrong to think about a girl? Now put yourself in that position. How am I going? I have a hunger inside for the for the um, the, the relationship and the warmth that uh, a, a wife brings to to my. Or I perceive that that a wife would bring to my existence. How can I how can I embrace that longing if thinking about a girl is dirty? And I'm a Christian. You see the trap? He couldn't get over this because he grew up in a home and in a community where sexual things were dirty. You didn't talk about it. You didn't talk about it in a sanctified way, so the youth talked about it in a dirty way. There was a lot of moral problems in his community. That's the way he grew up. His only worldview was that intimacy and sexual things are dirty. And I have finally convinced him that his pursuit of a girl pleases God. It pleases God if it's sanctified. I'll talk to you about sanctification and intimacy later. We'll leave that for now. But recognize and embrace those longings. It is not unnatural. Those, those longings are, are wonderful, God-given longings that God intended uh, to be satisfied now there it is true that that, that some of us most of us probably have longings that 'll never be satisfied this side of the Jordan River, but we still have them, and they 're still god given What the devil does let me let me re- really quickly explain this to you what the devil does he hijacks those longings and use, use them for his purpose. Remember the trade center remember remember those flights heading for west, some destination west. But a hijacker turned them around and made them vessels of destruction instead of transportation. That's what the devil does with our longings. What do we do with the hungers of the heart? We recognize and embrace those longings. We begin by directing your deep hungers to God. You begin by directing your deep hungers to God. Remember, I I want us to embrace our humanity tonight in this. You and I have longings. The abused person has longings and the only safe place where she'll never be disappointed is in her relationship with God. But often the abused person says, I can't feel God. I don't know who He is. I don't know if He cares about me. In fact, there are days I'm sure He doesn't care about me. How do you relate then? Find a person to share your deep hungers with and help you form legitimate boundaries. There are, of course, boundaries to our hungers. We live in a promiscuous world that the only foundation you need for any immoral trash you want is the desire for it. Now, I know none of us embrace that here, but we live in such a world. There are boundaries. That is true. Legitimate boundaries. Find a person to help you Uh, uh, form legitimate boundaries. And the last thing about hungers is harness your longings for service in the kingdom. This is so simple, but it is so profound. I have a need to be loved. Let me just admit that to you. I have a need to be loved. I'm human. I have a need for acceptance. I'm human. This is no secret Carried in from Holmes County to Lancaster County, but the best way that I can feel love is to give love, is to love my brother, to bend myself over somebody dirty and wash their feet. That's one of the best ways to feel love. Harness the longings for service in the kingdom of God. we're, We're sometimes in our churches we're not the best at that. We have men and women in our in our midst that have wonderful, wonderful talents. That we either suppress or ignore, for whatever reason, and we should be a church that recognizes that. Let's let's say in, in 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 finishing off with the hungers. Let me say this: that God created your hungers, and the devil wants to hijack them and use them for his purposes. <clears throat> so we have we have. Um, we have hungers of the heart. We have the abusers as roadblocks. Now we come to the third roadblock, and that is guilt. If only I had not been in the wrong place at the wrong time. If only I had dressed differently. If only I had, I had been a different person. The abused person often, often says and uh, takes on herself guilt that doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong there. How do we overcome guilt? There's a lot of ways we try. We smother by denial, we cast out by irrelevance, we smother by pride, we conceal in fear, we dismiss guilt as cultural, and we deny by innocence. We can choose one of those, or we can overcome guilt. And let let me just say a sensitive word that we're a people that uses a lot of guilt. We're a people group that uses a lot of guilt. Let me go one step further and say that... um, Well, maybe I won't go one step further. Determine true or false guilt. The abused person must always determine true or false guilt. They have both. Some of their guilt is God-given. The Holy Spirit lays a burden on their heart that I have responded wrongly. I have made other victims in my life. I have lived selfishly. I have lived self-protectively. And all of those things. That is true guilt. That can be taken to the cross. And you can be free of that. But there's also false guilt. Why? Why didn't God make me some other way? Or why was I in the wrong place at the wrong time? If I would have just ran harder or yelled louder or fought harder, He would have never sinned. False guilt is a horrible thing to live with. False guilt has a distinctly different approach than true guilt. I am a person that believes in the gospel of Jesus Christ and that there is no guilt except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. We sang it tonight. But I don't think false guilt can submit itself to that because it's false. We have to renounce that guilt. We have to say, I reject that guilt. And often the abused person needs someone to help and say, you have to say, you reject that guilt. That was not your fault. You cannot, you cannot take responsibility for that. You have, you have no responsibility for that. Determine true or false guilt. And uh, reject false guilt, of course, is the second one. And thirdly, surrender guilt to God's grace. There are times when a person isn't sure. She or he should have guilt. Well, let me just say this. True and false guilt can surrender their power in your life or in my life at the cross. Guilt has to be dealt with. It is a roadblock, a real roadblock, and it's also a false roadblock. Learn how to determine true or false guilt. Number four is shame. Shame is the painful feeling of lost respect of others because of wrong behavior. In abuse there is always shame or almost always shame. Shame is actually essential to an ordered existence. We live in a world that doesn't have a lot of shame, right? The, shame, the in our in, not not in our in our Anabaptist world, but in the world at large, the world out there doesn't have a lot of shame. You can see it in the way they dress, that they act, they talk, they look. They've lost their sense of shame. Shame is actually essential in the right place. In the wrong place, it's just like fire. If you build fire in the stove in your basement, it heats the house. It's a wonderful thing. But if you have fire raging on the kitchen stove because somebody burned something there, you may lose your house. It's that way with shame. How do you overcome shame? First of all, admit that the abuse caused shame. Some feelings lose their power when you express them. Shame seems to increase in power when you express it. And when we're abused, we, we tend not to want to face that shame. I'm going to say this. It can be overcome and we must admit that the act and its outcome was shameful. Embrace that I am made in the image of God. I want all of us to think of ourselves made in the image of God. We, an abused person sees, has a love-hate love, hate relationship with their body. And it's really, really tough for them to see themselves as made in the image of God after they've tried to process the abuse. But we need to embrace the fact that I am made in the image of God. Fallen true, but I'm still made in the image of God. Embrace that you're His temple. His temple. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I, g- I gave you that verse to begin with. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. Shame needs to be a friend, not an enemy. Number five is fear. Fear is such a, a, a huge roadblock on the journey to restoration. Restoration. You can look at fear a lot of ways, but uh, what, what happens, what usually happens is this. Something bad happens to me. And I, I, in an effort to protect myself from more pain, I put up a wall. And whenever I fear that pain, I can slip behind that wall. And I can exist behind that wall for, for whatever time it takes to escape more pain. But what I don't escape is I don't escape fear. Fear is a horrible taskmaster, Master. I would like to encourage you if you're here th- this evening and you're working with people, I think us Anabaptist people need to merge the mental and physical together because fear has fourteen hundred known responses, known neurological and and biological responses. I could tell you I could for the next half hour I could tell you their responses. I personally think that fear probably does more, causes more um, health problems than anything you can shake a stick at, especially in abuse cases. Fear. How do you overcome fear? Number one is you reject lies. When I'm at home, I usually draw a diagram, but I, 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 I put God here and the person here. And I build a building block of lies. I get the person to say, I have believed this lie. I am no good. Nobody loves me. God, is not, God doesn't like me. Uh, my life won't amount to anything. There's, there's sometimes 10, 15 lies that people have believed. After I've made that stack, God is here and the person is here. In a little stick figure, of course. I ask them, how do you see God? And they say, well, I can't see Him because the lies are stacked up so you can't see God. Lies have to be repented of. They represent unbelief, which represents the original sin in Genesis 2. Lies have to be repented of. And as you... Let let me see if I can get the the verse in, in, in 2 Corinthians 10. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations, or the center column in King James says reasonings, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You and I are confronted with the devil's lies. When he opens his mouth, he lies. Simply lies. We're confronted with that in our lives. But the abused person is especially confronted with that. And it's really difficult for a truly abused person that has been a victim to fall before God and say, God, I'm here and I'm sorry that I have believed a lie. But it can be done. It's how you overcome fear. One of the ways you overcome fear. Cast out fear through the power of love. 1 John 4:18. there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. He that fears is not made perfect in love. It's speaking in the context. context is speaking about our relationship to God but it's also applicable to our relationship with others. Here's the way I would like to encourage you to look at it. Take the person you fear. If you've been abused, take, to put the put the abuser's face before your in your mental in your, in your 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 mind, and ask God for a love that conquers your fear. Here's a way to understand it. Let's imagine we're in school. This is a blackboard. And up here I write the the words big, F-E-A-R, fear. It is, by the way, false evidence appearing real. Fear. Now, I take an eraser about this big, a black eraser, and that eraser has four letters, L-O-V-E, and I erase fear. I am sure that most of us have relationships that cause fear, right? We're human. If you're abused or not, we have relationships that cause fear. It is wonderful, absolutely wonderful to guide a person, to have the the love of God poured into their hearts, a supernatural love that I can't produce. I can only I'm only one beggar showing another beggar where the bread is. It is so wonderful to see a person who's lived in fear for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Get that love of God deep in their heart and be able to approach somebody who in the past has caused fear and simply show them love. I believe it's one of the most powerful things we can do both for for the abused person and for all of us. Cast out fear through the power of love. And the third one under fear is replace self-protection with vulnerable obedience. I'm going to illustrate it with a couple I'm going to stretch it a little. I'm not, I, I, I can't put names to this couple and I wouldn't want to. But let's say that there's, there's a husband and a wife that has a dysfunctional marriage. And they've had the dysfunctional marriage for 10, 20, 30 years. And, and um, you know, they were just like all the other couples that, that we know. When they went to the, they, they went to the altar, the, the, the wife or the, the girl hung on to every word and the, the boy thought he had the best thing that ever, that ever came down the pike. But all of a sudden, 10, 20 years later, they have become enemies. Their relationship is like this. Okay, as you work through forgiveness, as you work through what's, what's wrong and all of that, and you ask the husband to love his wife. I've had, I've had, I don't know how many husbands look at me and say, well, do you expect me to love my wife if um, all she does is, and then he'll say, she'll, he'll say what she does when he tries to show her love. So you come to the other side of the table and you say, Wife, are you willing to show respect to your husband or to love your husband? To do this and this and this that shows, get him to define respect. Are you willing to do that? By the way, women, you get to define love. Men, you get to defi- define respect, not the other way around. But that's off limits for tonight. But let's say that you ask her to do that and she says, Well, he's, he's going to. I'm going to be a carpet. He's going to walk over me like I was... Like I was a doormat. Okay? If you believe that, your marriage will go like this for the rest of your life. It takes vulnerable obedience. Among all the other things, let's just take it in church. If you are unwilling to love a brother or a sister in church who has wronged you, you are being disobedient to God. I don't care how you slice it. I don't care how how, how many reasons you have or how reason sound. I don't care. You're being disobedient to God because the Bible commands fervent love among each other. It's the same way with husband and wife. It's the same way with people in church. And it's the same way between abusers and abused. Replace self-protection with vulnerable obedience. Number six, a wrong view of God. Here's a roadblock that I don't, if there were something that I could turn a key on or press a button on a person who is struggling in life because of abuse, it would be this one. If I had one button to push, that would, that would if I could correct this in a, in a moment's notice, I could transform lives really, really fast. Again, the question, why, if God was there, did He allow it? If He's a righteous God and He hates sin, why did He allow it? If He wasn't there, how do I know that He's going to be there when I need Him again? It's basic human unbelief in approaching to God. And I'll guarantee you, God is always far away. A wrong view of God. I want to encourage us tonight to... Well, let let me say this. That that whole scene of abuse and, and relating to God actually appeals to something us humans really struggle with. And that is, I want to make life work on its own. I want to do it myself. I am strong enough, young enough, smart enough, nice enough to do it on my own. And I'm going to do it on my own. I'm going to do it on my own. It's called, the fancy word for that is autonomous. I want to be autonomous. I want to make my own decisions. I want to do my own thing. And you know what? I've made it without God so far. Why should I need Him now? That's the logic. A wrong view of God. Let me quickly tell you um, how to crawl out of that. And that is, get to really know God. Get to really know God. Wasn't it Paul that said, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection? Didn't Jesus say, this is life eternal, that they may know Thee? the only true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent, that they may know thee. Get to really know God. And you can do so by getting to know the nature of Jesus Christ. Didn't Jesus Christ say to Philip, Philip, he who has seen the Father has seen me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. When you and I get to look at Jesus Christ, His perfect life, everything about Him, we get to know God. And knowing Him changes our view of Him. I would like to encourage us on, a, on a, how to overcome a wrong view of God is to trust God for something small. Something really small. Something really small. If, if, if you struggle with abuse tonight, or if, you, if you're working with somebody who does, just get them to start small. Trusting God in just small, everyday things. And God will show Himself to you. The third thing that sometimes helps with the wrong view of God is just to journal your thoughts about Him. Just write and write and write and write. And don't try to decide if it's right or wrong. Just write. Just write. This is how I think about God. This is how I I perceive that He's dealt with me. And then go over that with a friend and say, okay, what is accurate and what is not? And how can I change that? And you will never find a therapy or a medication or ideas or a step-by-step program that fixes a wrong view of God. You must Get in connection with him and get to know him personally before that problem will go away. Number seven is powerlessness. Powerlessness. Let me let me give you the problem in the words of an abused person. I don't know her. Never saw her, but I read her words. And it represents... Um, it represents what a lot of abused people feel. I begged Jesus to save me. He didn't come. I was alone. And I was alone with evil. I felt powerless. I felt powerlessness. Powerlessness is a a roadblock in an abused person's journey. It must be removed. Let me just quickly go to overcoming it. I'd like to suggest that we can find comfort in Jesus Christ and what he experienced. And this woman wrote these words, and I think they're accurate. If Jesus loved me enough to choose powerlessness over powerfulness, then I can trust him with my life. I can place my life on the altar and say, Here I am. Here I am. I would like to just take that woman's testimony and make it really simple. You find comfort in the person of Jesus Christ. If he did it, I can follow his footsteps and do it too, and embrace uh, that feeling of powerlessness. And remember that any attempt to save will to save my life will ultimately lead to loss. Most of you could quote the words If any man will lose his life, he shall find it. If any man will if any man will find his life, he shall lose it. If any man will lose his life for my sake in the gospel, says Luke He shall find it. It's opposite than what we think. Our our natural minds think. In powerlessness, it's the same way. If I I continue to save my life, to control my life, in powerlessness, um, it often causes relationships and, and homes to become dysfunctional because the woman now leads the home. She leads the home because she has experienced powerlessness Therefore, she has become controlling. And as a control person, nothing can be out from under my uh, thumb. I control everything, including my husband. That's a dysfunctional home. It's not God's will. Any attempt to save your life will ultimately lead to loss. And give up to c- control to God is the third one on powerlessness. I don't know. This is hard to do. It's hard to do in my own life. Is just give up control to God. Just give up to God. He is big enough, strong enough, and capable enough and cares enough to take over. But it's just like it's just like a little boy, you see one of your sons or your daughters, they're trying to do something, they strain, they strain, they strain, and you stand beside there and you think, Well, I could easily do that if they just helped. That's the way many of us go through life. We strain, we strain, we strain, and we strain. And God's in heaven saying, you know what? If you just let me have it, I'd take care of it for you. But we in our ignorance of that or in our unbelief keep straining. Give up control to God. Number eight is betrayal. Abuse is betrayal of the highest order. I was, I was hurt by the one who should have protected me. How can I ever trust again? And some some abuse victims become obsessed with trust. Trust, trust, trust. They control their entire world and all of their relationships with one little thing. And that is, I simply don't trust you. How can I trust you? In fact, I heard a woman say that to her husband recently, that I quit trusting you. I can't trust you. You know why she said that? Because he was late once. for for, for supper when he had committed to reform in being on time for meals. He was late once. And she said, I don't trust you. I won't trust you again because you were late once. You cannot live under that kind of um, control. You cannot live there. But it often comes because they become obsessed with trust. How do you overcome that? First of all, understand trust. I already covered that. You don't have to trust to forgive. Uh, it is true that you begin trusting by degrees. Remember, we trust by degrees. You, you probably can't say of any one person in the world, I totally, completely trust Him without any reserve. But you tr- we all trust by degrees. Understand trust. <clears throat> Be, be opportunity focused because uh, when, when, when failure happens um, in the context of restitution and honesty, it can actually deepen relationships. The woman whose husband was wait, late for supper once after he had made commit, a commitment to reform could have used that as an opportunity to say, you know what, I now sense that you're, that you're making an effort, you were late once, and it's no big deal. It's, it's okay to be late. And could have put the marriage relationship at peace about that, because he can never live up to her expectations. She will always control him, always with that stick. He can't live perfect enough to achieve her or to, to rise to her standards if she doesn't change her standards. Failure is often a a a way God uses to um, to strengthen relationships. Don't accept fool's choice. Some abused people think that we have to trust somebody explicitly without any reserve or we don't trust them at all. It's not that simple. There's degrees of trust. I'll leave the rest. But in conclusion, I'd like to say this. Remember the girl I talked to that's been friends to Miriam and I for years? We never knew she was abused till she was incapable of thought. She still lives, but she's incapable of thought. Now, her mind is... is, is um what do you say kindly, gone, or at least partially gone. We never knew that. But let me, let me tell you something. That woman ministered to Miriam and I many times in wonderful ways. As a single person. She told me that I ask, I, I, I told God I will go anywhere you want me to go in life, except I don't want to marry. And God honored that request. I want to say this, that that person is a shining example of a woman who was abused horribly. I'm not going to go through the details to prove my words. Just trust me, it was horrible. But she, the grace of God, she became a billboard for grace. And her life shines to Miriam and I. The memory of her life and how it impressed us is wonderful. And it can happen again and again again and again, and again. Remember this, that if we have in our world one abuse victim in the next hundred years, that is one too many. One too many. But also remember this, that we all know people who have been abused and I want to I encourage us to be change agents and say to each other, there's grace to be had at the cross. There's power to be had at the cross. And let's become a people that points the way there. When I was sitting here, I looked out the window. There's a little mountain over here. Uh, at least I would call it a mountain where I come from. I imagined the cross on top of that mountain. You and I, as Christians, can point, the, point our fingers at the cross and say, There you get relief from your abuse, there you can be free again. There you can live with hope and joy and acceptance and love and all the good things that make our world go around. Not in a perfect world, but in a, in a world that has meaning and uh, in a world that we can, that abused people can serve the kingdom. Thank you.